Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwald. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Therefore, you must be at Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Bum, bum, bum. Just as we were beginning our recording, the news broke that President Biden has been infected with the coronavirus, the novel coronavirus, and is experiencing mild symptoms. Uh, you, uh, I'm watching right now as you are surfing Twitter for all of the latest reacts to the president's uh, illness. So I thought I would just disclose that at the beginning. Uh, Answer plus COVID. <laughs> oh. Can't be good. Oh, poor Joe Can't Biden. be good. Poor uh, Joe Biden. And they've gone to such extraordinary length, all of the masking, all of the everything to prevent it. And I, I hope he is I hope he is just fine. I hope that it's, it's only mild. Touche. Touche. <laughs> I have some good news. What do you got? I was approached. Okay. And asked, what are your tan drops? You look so glowing. That's the good news. I'm leading with the positive. Was that as a result of our discussion about your tanning drops? Yes, it was. Very nice. Um, The bad news is it was a close colleague. It wasn't like, you know, a stranger on the street. But I, I, and the other bad news is that I haven't received outreach from the company about sponsoring the podcast. But Tan Luke's, Tan Lux, Tan Luke's. How do you spell that? L-U-X-E. Tan Lux. Tan Lux. Luke's. And these are drops you put They're in your drops own moisturizer. drops that you put in your moisturizer. Uh, yes, Serena, go to Sephora and <laughs> buy it or wherever, or wherever you get your tan drops. I, I, I'm going to be on vacation next week. And hopefully, and I don't know whether you want to say or not, but we have- an, We have an interview with- yes. The Wall Street Journal's Global View columnist, Walter Russell Mead, that we recorded earlier this week, that we will drop next week. So, a lot to look forward to. And he's smart, and I bet it was great. And so, but I hope that I will return, that, I, uh, that, golf, that the golf course and the swimming pool will leave me tan-dropped myself. Chris, it is time for our front page. Which is kind of stacked this week. These are the stories that we thought were most important. Up first, tee it up for us. Well, I'm, cuff it up for us. <laughs> well, this is, and, and we'll get to talking more about the president and his diagnosis and his the the Biden agonistes. But I didn't want to fail to mention the failed media manipulation from I. You know, I go back and forth on this question, talking about publicity hounds. You don't want to give it to them, but I have to just, I have to point out Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez pantomiming being handcuffed when she was arrested and the fact that it seemed to work and the pictures looked right. She looked like she was being led away in handcuffs. And then when it was revealed that it was not, the press rightly turned on her and she was heaped with scorn for her effort at media manipulation, which in classic demagogue fashion, she said, oh, everybody knows that that's the right practice. That's the, it was for safety, guys. Don't you know that you put your hands behind your back whenever you're in custody? Like, do you now? Is that, is that what the, is that SOP? 
So kudos, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for massive failure in media manipulation. And beyond that, it just goes to underline how absolutely performative politics is these days. And these people, they actually get nothing done, but they are like play acting on their pet political issues. That's right. It's embarrassing. And we've talked many times about how there is an inverse correlation between celebrity and accomplishment in Washington. If you want to get stuff done, don't be famous. And if you want to be famous, don't try to get stuff done. Because if you get stuff done, you will not be able to engage in what Senator Ben Sass of the Cornhusker State refers to as jackassery, that you will not be able to engage in jackassery because you'll be trying to get stuff done. So if you want to be, if you want to be famous, focus on performative frog marching. What do we got next, Chris? Well, you know, this, this is a, a wonderful, this is a turducken of terrible. This is, you know my thing about news alerts and bad news alerts and pointless news I alerts. I actually don't know your thing about it. So, so I hate, enlighten I, us. I hate the way many publications, and again, I am sorry for being Washington, but so, so down on the Washington Post always, but the Washington Post has the worst news alerts and they have the, the, the I, I can never figure out w- what their standard is. But here's a Washington Post news alert at 11.27 p.m. on July 18th. So theoretically, this is something that they believe that their subscribers should urgently know. Biden considers considers declaring climate change a national emergency as soon as this week with legislation to fight global warming stuck in the Senate. The White House has explored keyword, taking action on its own. The emergency declaration described by three people, well, if it's three people in that case, familiar with the matter, could be part of a broader series of administration announcements. And here is what I love. Here is the, here is the sweet, nougaty goodness. Though no final decisions have been made. Why would you possibly alert anyone to that? That your White House team, I guess the reason that you would do it would you assume Eliana is so that you could plant your, that you didn't have the whole story, but you figured that the New York times was going to get the whole story. You want to mark your territory. So you're planting your flag. You want to mark your territory. We first knew almost the story. We almost knew the story first before somebody else got the story. Does any reader care at all? Is there anyone who cares? This is all inside baseball. Yeah. No reader cares. No reader cares whether you almost had the story before they almost had the story. And by the way, the story turned out not to be correct, right? So Biden is is declaring, do you know where we are on the climate? So Biden has declared that there is a climate emergency, but he's not going to declare a state of emergency. Is this correct? Is that where we are now? I don't know. But even there- I'm at politics is performative, so yeah, yeah, yeah. nothing's going to happen even, on this. Even the mealy-mouthed, even this mealy-mouthed alert didn't even pan out to the degree that the they mealy-mouthed it. So just, and also in the category of bad White House coverage, attributing to the president, you know, my recent obsession about fake, fake capabilities, but real criticism, right? If only the president would be angrier, if only the president would talk more about this, if only the president, and this happens in whoever's president, Oh, if only the president would use his bully pulpit to do X, Y, Z. Well, they can't, right? And we talked about that last week with press freedom. We talk about it all the time, which is if they could, they would, but they can't. And there's no amount of anger that Joe Biden can show on gun control 
as we were joking around before we started recording, was, you know, it's not like nobody said, hey, check with the Republicans. Maybe they'll go for gun control. Oh, shoot, we forgot to call Mitch McConnell. They're all in on gun control. <laughs> so it's not being, to your point, being performatively angry or talking about things or channeling the outrage of younger voters or whatever does not do anything. And the press continues to embrace the idea that somehow, if only the president acted or felt a different way, that these policy problems would be resolved. Should we stay on the Washington Post? Do it. I wanted to discuss their column. There's a uh, column this week by Perry Bacon. The headline is, How Media Coverage Drove Biden's Political Plunge. It's a real doozy. And the upshot of it is that the media has been too hard on Biden and is responsible for his poor poll his poor polling and it just seemed to me like a real cell phone but let me let me read a little bit of it the mainstream media has played a huge underappreciated role in president biden's declining support over the past year its flawed coverage model of politics and government is bad for more than just biden it results in a distorted national discourse that weakens our democracy the media needs to find a different way to cover washington now can i just interject here I wholly agree. <laughs> I, I wholly agree with everything after the first sentence, right? The, there is a flawed coverage model of politics and government. And as I just said, focusing on the presidency too much, all that. But that first sentence where the media has played a huge and underappreciated role in Biden's declining support is a real Lulu. Let me continue. One of the sharpest dips in Biden's approval rating, which has dropped from 55 percent in January 2021 to less than 39 percent today, happened last August when it declined almost five points in a single month. There wasn't a huge surge in gas prices, nor some big legislative failure. What caused Biden's dip was the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan or rather the Uh. media's 24-7 highly negative coverage of it. Oh, Perry Bacon Jr., come Um, on. Oh, my gosh. If only... This is this is of course very Trumpian. This is this is Perry Bacon taking a very Trumpy point of view here. If only the press would not talk about all the bad things, then we would be more popular. It's the press's fault of talking about these bad things. Why how come nobody ever wants to talk about all the good things we're doing? How come they're focusing on a massive humanitarian crisis and debacle and the worst US foreign policy failure since Vietnam? How how come or since Iraq, how come we're not talking, how come we're only talking about that and we're not talking about our progress on wind energy? Jeez Louise. He says, relentless negative coverage is toxic for polit- for politicians, dot, dot, dot. And Biden's arc shows what happens if this broad tenor turns against the politician. I mean, reporters are supposed to be shining a light on the literally the most powerful man in the world and holding these people to account. But also, he failed. It- the Afghanistan withdrawal it's, was a disaster. It was totally a disaster. And it would be, um, you know, we talked here and you you shone a light on praise for the press for holding Bi- Biden accountable for the errors in judgment that he and his administration made around this issue. I, this is, I don't know what, I don't know how to describe this. Perry Bacon is a smart person, but this is an astonishingly dumb argument. What do we got next? Oh, Biden's cancer scare. Let's listen to the clip first of what the president had to say. And guess what? The first frost, you know what was happening. It had to put on their windshield wipers to get literally the oil slick off the window. 
That's why I and so damn many other people I grew up have cancer. And why can't for the longest time Delaware had the highest cancer rate in the nation. So I was about to say that Biden made a simple slip of the tongue and it was being blown out of all proportion. People saying that he had cancer until I opened up the story to look at this, to play the clip. And I see that the White House is digging in on this and saying that he did indeed, that he did, that he was referring to the fact that he had skin cancer previously in his life. And I am, I am, I'm humbled by the fact that it, that, that, that a story like this could get stupider. And, and I, I I thought we had, And, and like, he's blaming it on the environment. Yeah. He, I, I don't, I, I don't, Look, cancer clusters are real things. I grew up in the Upper Ohio Valley. Cancer clusters are real things. And I too many friends lost moms to breast cancer too many too much. And that's a real thing. But I was going to say, I was going to say, "Oh, why don't you leave Joe Biden alone? It's just cuz everybody's saying that he's, you know, senile that we're extra sensitive to it. It was a slip of the tongue." But then the White House defeats me by taking it seriously and digging in on the claim. So I, I passed I passed the baton. The the stupidity outran me before I could even get there. What do we got next? Speaking of so Biden was talking about climate issues. Have you observed any of the incredibly obsessive coverage around the high temperatures in Britain and how hot it's been in Britain? No. Okay, I Zero. I I first noticed this when I was watching the British Open and they were talking about how hot it was. Have you ever been to Scotland? No, it's not the a dear friend of mine who went to school in Scotland, who a Brit who went to school in Scotland, put it this way. There's two kinds of weather in Scotland raining or about to rain. There's only <laughs> those are the only two. Those those are the only two kinds of climate. But they're talking about how hot it was at St. Andrews. And while they're talking about it, I'm watching golfers playing in a light sweater as they're going around. I'm like, OK, so it's hot, but maybe not like. When I walked outside this morning in Washington, D.C., into what was essentially the mouth of a Great Dane, into just the, <laughs> the kind of the kind of enveloping, disgusting heat. But anyway, they got a high temperature of 104 Fahrenheit in London, which, of course, should not or does not typically get that hot. Hat tip to maritime climates and the Gulf Stream. Way to go for stable climates. Now, of course, 104 degrees in New York. Not surprising because I would say New York is the is it's hotter in New York in the summer than anywhere I've ever been. It's a disgusting kind of New York City. Yes, it's disgusting. What? Yes, it's a giant heat sink. It's way worse here. No way. New York is oh my the gosh. worst place. That in the is summer. like one of the worst takes you've ever had. Worse than your, like, you know, normal, but the right also, you know, does bad things. The New York City smells like urine. That it does, but it's not as hot as The collected heat of this, so D.C. has, is a relatively small city. And it has the worst mosquitoes on top of the heat. Like the mosquitoes are friggin' terrible. Mosquitoes are a real, are a real threat here, but I think, I think D.C. has a better climate than New York. And I think New York in the summertime is a heat sink. In the winter, it does. And disgustingly, disgustingly hot. And I, I hate Manhattan in the summer. There, I said it. But anyway, the amount of coverage that the British heat wave is getting 
and it's a climate story. It's a good summer story because it's like a little overseas. And Wimbledon, by the way, I'm sure Wimbledon and the British Open, which had news crews and folks covering things in Britain, so they were experiencing it. But I just thought that was interesting how I, it really got, it has really gotten a lot of attention. I like the picture on this article, which is like some young girl passed out in the middle of the street from like heat stroke. That's very dramatic. They very dramatic. They had to close an airport. I forget the, the Royal Air Force had to shut down one of its bases because the runway had gotten so hot that it was melting. The tarmac was melting. So they're not they're not equipped for the kind of disgusting heat that we know is real in Washington, D.C. All right. Next up, we have NBC News' deep dive on gun violence in America, which I realize now I saw snippets of and not enough to form a real opinion. But you have a take because you put it here. Well, the only take is that it's interesting that they did something. NBC News, NBC Nightly News. Now it was a Sunday. But on Sunday, NBC Nightly News did something unusual, which is they gave up half of the broadcast for – more of a news magazine style, 17-minute report on gun violence. Basically, they did a day in the life of gun violence in the United States. And it was, I mean, look, if you're a strong pro-Second Amendment person, you're not going to have loved the coverage, obviously. But it was not, I mean, it, it was, they, one of the good things I think that's happening with firearms coverage, gun coverage, is that we're talking now about gun violence, urban gun violence in ways that we weren't before. And part of this, I'm sure, is a desire to pad the numbers for gun control advocates who previous, you know, there, there, there's a push me, pull me for the left on covering urban violence. If you focus on, let's say, Chicago or St. Louis or any of the cities where there have been, you know, this, this plague of gun violence, you're criticizing Democratic leadership, right? And you're also talking about perpetrators who are overwhelmingly African-American. And that's not a good look. So that's not something that left-of-center journalists want to talk about. But if you want to talk about how much mass, how much gun violence and how many mass killings there are, those numbers are very helpful, right? If you want to say, like, look at how much there is. So I think in the past there was an effort to exclude that was like, well, that's different. We want to talk about when young white dudes go in places and kill lots of people at once. And there was less interest, I think. And by the way, I should say, it's also news is what's different. Urban violence shooting in the streets is old, right? That's, that's old news. That's all that, you know, you can go back to the 1980s, you go back to the seventies. This is not like a new phenomenon. Whereas mass, these kind of mass shootings are really only since the nineties have they become more regular events. So I stipulate all that. But I do think anyway that this new inclusive kind of coverage looking at it more, I, I credit that. And I think the question for the NBC Nightly News is, are we really going to keep having the Nightly News, right? They, no, they're going to go. Yeah. And I think this is this points the way toward the, and I, by the way, I think it's too bad because I think the Nightly News special report on Fox still tries to do this, where you run packages that are tight, new, that they're like articles, right? This is the model that a lot of Americans grew up with. It's six o'clock. Here's 
this story, this story, this story, take a break, come back. Here's some international news, sort of the wide variety of coverage. And then, of course, followed by a story about an elk getting trapped in a sporting goods store or somebody who has a bluebird rescue or an endearing story of like, oh, remember our dog from last week who learned to walk like a human? (laughs) Yeah. So a bright at the end. And so that model of a newscast, I think it's something really valuable. It's proportional. It has order to it. It is. It helps viewers understand priorities. It's good. But I think that that is dying. And I think NBC experimenting with giving over half of the half hour, more than half of the half hour to one story and doing this kind of in-depth coverage is points the way that this is probably going the way of the dodo, right? I just don't think that you, you see it with the Sunday news shows, like yes. the the format of having a discrete time and place where people gather, you know, on their couch to consume an hour's worth of news is just not the way people are consuming news anymore. Yes. And well, in my obsession this week, we'll, t- we'll get to talk about that more. That's what, Chris, we, call, that's what we call like a deep in, tease, folks. Our, that's a deep tease. Entire top is stacked with with. Chris items and the entire bottom of the front page was stacked with Eliana items. That so this is, not, is the final, not final by design, Chris item. Not by design. Okay. So not by design. But it just means you're talking more at the top. And then, you know, for those who prefer my commentary, it's coming. I promise you. Well, this Steve Bannon's War Room podcast catapults to Apple's top 10 in news during contempt of Congress trial. Uh, this is from Newsweek. The podcast Bannon's War Room has risen to a monthly high of 44 among all U.S. podcasts on Apple Podcasts, according to podcast metric, how many times can you say podcast in a lead Newsweek? According to podcast metrics company Chartable, Bannon's War Room is also still in the top ten news podcasts on Apple streaming service. I want to apologize to you if I had fought testifying before Congress and had a trial. Maybe we could have gotten Inkstained Wretches on the top ten. So maybe that was. You know, a missed. I'm a missed, never gonna forget this. A missed opportunity. I'm never gonna forget this. Missed opportunity. Sorry, sorry, wretches. Uh, we could. Tan we, Lux would be sponsoring this podcast exactly, right now. Exactly. I'm. 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 I'm sorry that I did not show contempt for Congress, and I. I could. I could. I could have been making us the big bucks over here. Bummer. Bummer. Bummer, man. All right, Chris Licht, other Chris, has picked his leadership team. We should have done this much higher. I think this is like A1 item for news. I think it's great information. I, the, okay. The rundown may have been composed in a haphazard fashion Yeah, today. as I was eating my <laughs> breakfast pastry. Chris Licht has picked his leadership team over at CNN. And I got to say, like, not much of a shakeup. So he has elevated uh, a longtime CNNer, Virginia Mosley, to run news, basically. So she's going to be executive vice vice president of editorial. I don't know much about her, except for that she is the wife of Tom Nides, who is Joe Biden's ambassador to Israel. And it's kind of amazing how many spouses of Biden administration officials are at CNN. But who else? So, you know, jury's out. Jury's out. Who else? Corrine Jean-Pierre's spouse uh, we, is we- Suzanne Malveaux. And then I aired insane spouse, Valerie Jarrett's daughter, Laura okay. Jarrett. So we've got three, okay. now one in a very prominent position. Okay. So jury's out because I just don't know, for me, I just don't know enough to say. But I think we did get a little taste of the new CNN oh, this dear. week. And this, we got to put the link in our show notes to this segment, which is on the drama in the UK over the next prime minister. 
And so we will put that link in. But basically, they are talking about the like battle to you know who's going to Replace succeed Boris. Bojo, and uh, and then all of a sudden. We have the correspondent in a boxing ring, and she's like delivering the news in this cute little sports bra getup while boxing, and she's very cute. And I loved it, but Chris did not like it. But let's play it. You really have to see it, but let's just play it. Who wins the last round will be up to less than two hundred thousand Conservative Party members. Rishi Sunak is the clear favourite. He's had MPs in his corner from the start, but having served as Boris Johnson's chancellor for two years, he is most closely associated with him. So I thought, okay, like this isn't overtly partisan news, but it's kind of fun to watch and she's cute. Like, is this kind of the foxification of, of CNN? Putting a woman in a bra to do the news while she is, be, and she's and she, her as you heard, her tone is... I won't, it's not flirty, but it's—I don't know what it—it's it, no, it's very knowing. She has a very knowing tone, and it's tacky and gross, and uh, it's sexualizing your reporters is not cool. So don't do that. Oh my gosh, I totally disagree with you. <laughs> I totally disagree with Chris. Television is a visual medium. So the sexualization of both men and women, like to a certain extent, is something that you kind of have to do. You think they should just put like JB, you want JB Pritzker to be like, you know, on the evening news? I didn't say that. Obviously, having attractive people. I, I, as I like, like to what's say, the difference between the sports bra and like, you know, a short, a little skirt and like a, a tight top when women go on television dressed in cocktail dresses with big cutout patches in them and <laughs> they're dangling, dangling their high heels at the edge at the edge of their chair. It's gross. Don't. Mm, I don't think Christmas is Fox News. Oh, well, I'm just saying not naming any names, but I'm just saying that there are a lot of. Women who do a great job of uh, who are very attractive and look great and wonderful without being so overtly sexual and without showing skin and without doing that stuff. I think there are, I think there's lots of female journalists who do it right. And obviously, as I like to, I as totally I like, agree. Like, it doesn't need to be overt. And I didn't think this was. She wasn't in like such a skimpy, you know, whatever. It was very tasteful and black. And if your abdomen is visible while you're on, while a you're little reporting bit, the news, a little bit. It was of for your boxing, abdomen. Chris. It was yes. It was all for the. And that's the other thing. She was only boxing to illustrate that it was a real grudge match. It was tough. Well, she could have done that playing checkers. She could have done that doing something else. But. Oh, my. Yes. Such a visual medium, like this correspondent playing checkers. Well, I, I, I think that, it, that CNN should not put partially dressed people on television doing the news is what I say. And I don't think All anybody right, well, should. Chris Licht, if you want, you know, help with PR, <laughs> contact me. I'm available. Okay. This is the, we're getting to kind of like our style section, like the last item in, okay. you know, A32. A okay. Uh, the New Yorker has its very own Taylor Lorenz. This is, we got to link this Twitter thread because you like have to read it to believe it. It's a it. doozy. When I open oh, it up, it's Oh my a doozy. gosh. I, does she, so this woman who works at the New Yorker, her name is Erin Overby and this is such a long tweet thread. Like it must be 40 tweets in here at least. 
she is the archive editor at the New Yorker because I think Sweet, that fancy they Moses. have a a feature where they pull out pieces from their archive. And she goes on this like 40 tweet thread about the sexism at the New Yorker that starts several years ago when my at New Yorker newsletter hit a 70 percent plus unique open rate. As I've mentioned previously here. Yes, I'm sure she's been mentioning this like over and over again. I noted this accomplishment to a male icon of journalism. I was pleased by this feat and thought he would be. Instead, he turned to me and said, now don't get cocky. And she goes on and on and on and basically ends up accusing David Remnick, who's, who's the, David Remnick, the yeah, editor but... of The New Yorker, of inserting errors into her copy so that she so that he could like undermine her. It's totally bonkers. In addition to being the editor. But it does go to this new phenomenon of like junior employees savaging their employers. Publicly, And in addition to being her boss, David Remnick, whether you like his work or don't like his work, is one of the most accomplished journalists. Like, did you read his Soviet, the end of the Soviet book? Lenin's that he wrote? tomb. Great. Right. Like really well reported and all of this stuff. So he's highly acclaimed, highly esteemed person that does not seem like I'm not saying that he is infallible or something, but does not seem like a person that you would just say, you know what, I'm going to go on Twitter and start trashing like the. Uh, can, I got to read the final tweets because right. they're so crazy. So she says, the male colleague at the magazine who added these errors to my copy while I was under performance review is David Remnick, the at New Yorker's editor-in-chief. I don't pretend to understand why he did this. I do know that he has intimate knowledge of, you know, so-and-so's work and when she died. I would like to think that the at New Yorker fully understands how professionally serious and deeply offensive it is to be accused, reprimanded, and penalized for errors that are not one's own. I have a copy of the email that Remnick sent me, should they like to see it. I'll be looking into pursuing a complaint on the matter. Yeah, I bet. I'm sure you will. But in the meantime, I would hope that the at New Yorker would have the decency to offer me an apology for seeking to penalize a longtime female employee with a successful record for errors made by the magazine's EIC. I also hope that speaking out on this will make other publications think twice about going after or seeking to punish whistleblowers and institutional critics especially ones who have previously been given awards for outstanding achievement by their own companies. It's, Woo! It's coming a, in hot. And on a I swear this is true on a 40 40 tweet thread. Believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here first. 2798 likes or 2728 oh likes on the 40th tweet. Like all the way through oh thousands God. and thousands and thousands of people. Do you think they're all Felicia Sanmez? Just like, there, like, 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 fi- like firing like, them off, firing she, them off. Because she's silent on Twitter, but, you know, she has to be lurking and liking. Oh, is Felicia Sanmez? She's totally silent. Her lawyer must have been like, you gotta, you gotta. You, you, must, you must stop. You must zip it. Is, is Taylor Lorenz still at the Post? No, they fired her. Oh, they fired her, but they Oh, kept... no, Taylor Lorenz. Sorry, Sanmez. Yes, Taylor Lorenz is there. Yeah, so she's silent on Oh Twitter. my gosh, I misspoke. I misspoke. I'm sorry. I meant to say that the New Yorker has its own Felicia Sanmez. Like uh, criticizing them and attacking them. I think they both I'm fit. I'm so sorry. So I, I completely misspoke. I think they both fit. I think uh, you're I think you're okay. okay. I think okay. the the Felicia Sanmez Taylor Lorenz fit in the same they mi- that well that is why they were confused in my mind, but I, I misspoke. It's not what I meant. They're both micturating inside the tent is what they're doing. 
my condolences, David Remnick. Because <laughs> what she's what she's doing here is threatening to sue. Basically, without saying it, she's threatening to sue the New Yorker for these things. And it's what never tweet, ladies and gentlemen. Never tweet. Don't do it. Don't do it. Chris, it is obsession time. Dun dun dun. <laughs> stories that we couldn't get out of our heads and Chris mine isn't exactly one story but it's something I've kind of been cogitating on since Brett Kavanaugh was dining at Morton's downtown DC and was drummed out by protesters and Morton's issued a statement that was like mocked by the media and Politico specifically that Morton said that they believe all their customers have the right to you know, eat dinner in peace, yeah, which probably, I thought yeah. was totally appropriate. And then Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez responded, poor guy, he left before his souffle because he decided half the country should risk death if they have an ectopic pregnancy within the wrong state lines. It's all very unfair to him. The least they could do is let him eat cake. And then, essentially, my obsession is about the media's coverage of protest slash harassment when it's of Republicans as opposed to Democrats and also the way Democrats respond to it. So I saw the New York Times had a piece over the weekend, the headline, wake up billionaires, the occupiers are coming for the Hamptons. And it's about like, you know, 10 crazy protesters who stand outside the Hamptons estates of masks on billionaires. Yeah. And it's like, why is this newsworthy? They're basically these 10 people who are outside these Hamptons estates, but they're getting a write-up in the New York Times. And it is, mocking, it is mocking them. It's not really, if you read it. But they had the wrong house. Yeah, but like... Is a they, good line. They, they don't get in the coverage that like, if you read it, like they're really not mocking them. It's very favorable coverage yeah. for these people in the group, so... So they note, on Tuesday morning at 5 a.m., before the day's oysters were unloaded, yada, yada, they were, you know, these people were there to, to stage what they described as billionaire wake-up calls. The group, mostly members of New York Communities for Change, so like all these groups, they want coverage of their groups. These people end up in the New York Times, a progressive grassroots nonprofit Wanted to start the summer home of the controver- wanted to start this at the summer home of controversial Donald Trump supporting Blackstone Group chairman and CEO Stephen Schwartzman. But they had the wrong house. So they're like making hay and it's not even, you know, the guy who they're trying to go after. Anyhow, they get this big write up in the New York Times. And then, by the way, there's like an epic correction. Like every fact in this article is wrong at the, at the end of the article, which we'll link. Anyhow, it struck me that Tucker Carlson then does a segment on AOC, which, you know, was tacky. And, and kind of, he AOC put a video online where. She has, you know, she takes a video of herself and posts it to social media and she says she's exhausted and home alone. And Tucker Carlson says, is it just us or does that sound like an invitation to a booty call? Well, okay, so it's gross. Her response to this is that, and we should play the Tucker segment where he says this. Is it just us or does that sound like an invitation to a booty call? Maybe one step from what are you wearing? Either way, it's a little strange. It's definitely oversharing. And yet, according to the book, oversharing is the key to Sandy Cortez's success. Her response to this is to tweet, I genuinely want to know why Tucker Carlson is allowed 
paid to engage in clear, targeted, libelous harassment that endangers people and drives so many violent threats that people have to fundraise for their own safety, Ocasio-Cortez tweeted Saturday. And, you know, it's like, no, no. Like, if Brett Kavanaugh can be bullied out of, like, Morton's or drummed out of Morton's and the billionaires will have protesters in front of their houses at the Hamptons, then Tucker Carlson can make fun of the video you put online and say that you're doing a booty call. Like, I'm sorry, but, you know, them's the shakes. You're a public figure, too. And they're all tasteless, and none of them should happen. Yeah. But, like, you're not, you know, your life isn't any more in danger than anybody else's, and, like, them's the shakes. Let me, I just, a coda to the, I agree, the, a coda to this. Correction, July 19th, 2022. Oh, the corrections are amazing on the New York Times. Allow me to share. An earlier version of this article misspelled the surname of a man who recruits people to climate change causes while longboarding. <laughs> His name is Jeremy <laughs> Maldonado, not Maldonado or Maldonado. You missed the earlier correction. An earlier version of this article contained several errors. It misidentified Alice Who's hometown and alma mater. She grew up in Champaign, Illinois, not Chicago, and she graduated from Columbia University, not Barnard College. The article also misstated Miss Who's affiliation with New York Communities for Change. She's a climate campaigner with the group, not its climate change director. The article also misstated the year that legislation establishing a $15 an hour minimum wage vote for New York State fast food workers was formally recommended. It was 2015, not 2021. And it misstated the date of a Facebook post by Dan Loeb. It was 2017, not last year. Let me just say, this article has like four facts in it. And all of the facts that it offered were wrong. You know, it's like an easy breezy style post. And the reporter, if you click on Jacob Bernstein... Yeah. It says he's a reporter for the Styles Desk. Uh, in addition to writing profiles of fashion designers, artists, and celebrities, he has focused much of his attention at the New York Times on LGBT issues, philanthropies, philanthropy, and the world of furniture design. <laughs> <laughs> and long so and climate re, climate activist uh, longboard recruiters. Yeah. Not named Maldonado. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Up next, your obsession, Chris. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's really, it's good. Okay, so, I sorry, I have, have accidentally opened an application called GarageBand on my borrowed computer, and I'm concerned about what may happen next. But if somebody, if I start rocking out to a Styx cover, you'll know that that's why. Okay, are you familiar with the Reuters Institute? No. Okay, so Reuters Institute is funded by... Duh, Reuters, but it's through Oxford University, and they spend a lot of time and money on analyzing, especially digital use. And we'll put a link to their report, and they do an annual report every year. Duh. (laughs) As opposed to doing an annual report every other year. So they do this report where they talk about how online, and increasingly this is an unimportant distinction, but media and news consumption around the world and in the United States. And I would direct you to this chart, if you would look with me, that shows the usage going back to 2013 of, so the question is, which, if any, of the following have you used in the last week as a source of news? And the categories are online, television, social media, radio, 
print, or none. None. So you can see online is flat. Basically, it's where it's about where it was a decade ago. Sixty-seven percent of people said they did. Television is on the as the as the long slide out. Right. Television is going to go join print media at some point, but it's it, it's when you've been as high as television used to be a decade ago, 72%. It takes a long time to die, and there's a lot of money to be made in the dying. Social media, flat for all of the discussion about what's going on in social media, 42%, and about the same as it was in 2018. No surprise, radio and print, the long, the long decline for those things. But by the way, I have a theory about print media. Tell me what you think about this that the reason print news will never go to zero, why there will always be a, a core constituency for print news is because it'll be for the very low end and the very high end. So there's always going to be a demand for print news for people who have poor access to the internet. And these are like ethnic newspapers, foreign language newspapers, free tabloids that they hand out on mass transit, those kinds of things. And then there's the other end, which is the super high-end, glossy magazine, the people who there, – there is a – have I ever told you how my eldest son explained to my youngest son what the newspaper was when, he, when his brother saw a newspaper for the first time when he was about five years old? We were at an airport, and I, I – as I the only time I ever buy a print newspaper anymore is at an airport. And so I bought the, the Wall Street Journal, and the boys are looking at it, and – my youngest man child asks his brother what it is, and his brother explains to him that they print out the best parts of the internet and put them in this so that you can read them wherever you are. And I thought, that's actually quite correct. That's actually a very good way to think about print journalism, because I think print media will be a luxury item because it's like, here it is. Do you ever read the Financial Times? Yes. Isn't it a pleasure yes, to hold excellent. that? paper and it feels it feels swishy and luck. So I think print media will never die, but it's at 15% and it's going to go eventually to, I don't know, 5% or whatever. Anyway, who cares? The big deal is in 2013, 3% of people said that they had gotten essentially no news in the past week. In 2022, it's 15%. So that's a five-fold increase in the percentage of Americans who say, Nope, I got no news. I obtained no news in the previous week. And I I guess I'll put it this way. Can you blame them? No. Can you blame? Like that's that's my dream. I remember that when I went, I went on a cruise in a, like a remote area when I was like a year out of college and there was no internet service. And it was a freaking delight. It was so awesome to like not have the option to... No, no cell phone service on the phone, nothing. You're just totally disconnected, and it was fantastic. I feel that. And now, by the way, let me ask you. Yeah? You received, you, did you get news online in the last week? Yes, I know. I just saw you do it. Did you get news from television in the last week? I, uh, bet, you, yeah. I bet you did. Social media? Yep. Yep. Radio? No. Any print? Yep. Okay, Definitely so, print. So you, you, you were four of five. And if you had ridden in a, a cab or an Uber with somebody who had the radio on, you would have been five for five. But, and I, I'm, I'm probably four for five, probably didn't see print this week. I'm not sure. But anyway, the point being, 
You know, we have a lot of nuns now in the United States. We have a growing number of people who do not have any religious faith. We have a growing number of Americans who do not participate in politics in any way. We have a growing number of people who have dropped out of news. And I understand why. It is the fault of those in the media, and I will take whatever share of the blame belongs to me, that has turned the news into performative garbage, that has made it about me versus you, that has made it sensationalistic, that has made it phony, that has made it, you know, I wrote my column for the dispatch this week about the gap between the Americans who, what Americans think fair coverage is and what journalists think fair coverage is. And 55% of journalists in the Pew study said that they did not think that you always had to present, that you had to present all sides of a story. 70% of Americans said you must and that they consider balance to be part of fairness. So that I understand why people want to drop out, but that the dropout rate here, and it, not just in the press, but across the board, we have th- this is the problem because we have made unplugging way, way too attractive on the basis of what what you can plug into is so unappetizing. All right. On that cheery note. It is time. Hey, on that cheery note, it's time for my favorite segment of the week, which is reader mail. And we have a note from Jake from Houston, Texas. Hi, Chris. I hope this email finds you and Eliana well. I know you're a big baseball fan, and I think you have stated on other podcasts you're a St. Louis Cardinals fan. True. You're from West Virginia and have stated before, I think you're a Steelers fan. True. Wow, this is like a Chris super fan. How did you become a Cardinals fan and not a Pirates fan? Is this because the Pirates set the record for longest consecutive losing seasons rec- mm. losing longest consecutive losing seasons records in all North American sports once? Mm. Well, oh, he says go Steelers too. Okay, well, Jake, thank you. I am a St. Louis Cardinals fan. I'm a I'm a Steelers fan. I I the, of the professional sport of the sports that I follow, I would say I love college football probably the most. College football and baseball pretty close. And then football, pro football, and hockey sort of on a second tier of interest. Of course, n- never the NBA. Though I have taken a have, – have I ever told you about professional cornhole? No. So there is a professional cornhole league, and I saw it one time, and I'm obsessed with it now. And as I like to say, it's the only professional sport sponsored by baked beans – it's the only one that can be brought to you by baked beans. I want to see like, and oh, that, that, I will watch bowling too when it's on. But anyway, are you kidding me? I will totally watch bowling when it's on. I mean, I'd rather watch that than soccer. But like, well, obviously, we're not. You're not a monster. Uh, <laughs> at least something happens in bowling. At least they knock stuff down. And I love the bowlers themselves. But I, it was very easy not to be a Pirates fan in the 1980s in Wheeling, West Virginia. Because nobody cared about the Pirates at all. Even when the Pirates were winning, right, in the early 80s, nobody cared because Pittsburgh is a football town, right? And the Pirates have always been. And, of course, the Pirates stink. And they are always bad. And they have been bad since the 90s. And it's, it's, all, it's all true. So it was easy to avoid being a baseball fan. I was not even much of a sports fan at all when my family moved to St. Louis for four years, four or five years when I was at peak baseball age. It was before I had discovered how wonderful girls were. And it was, we moved to St. Louis right at the moment 
when the Cardinals mid eighties moment exploded. So this was Ozzie Smith and this was Vince Coleman and this was Tommy Herr and this was awesome, right? This was Terry Pendleton, Jack Clark, the slugger who they brought in those days being a slugger meant you had like 22 home runs (laughs) as opposed to 60, but it was a, a golden moment for the Cardinals and the Cardinals are just, I know people are annoyed by Cardinals fans, but it's the it's the greatest professional sports franchise, I, I, and I think the Steelers and the Cardinals are a lot alike in this way. They're legacy franchises. They have high standards. They are. I've never known them to just be trash, and I've never known them to screw over the fans. I have a real bugaboo about professional sports franchises that take advantage of their fan bases. And I've never known the Steelers and the Cardinals to do that. And they're first-class operations, and I, I really admire the heck out of them. So Viva Albertos, and it's been an incredible pleasure watching Albert Pujols in the All-Star Home Run Derby, watching him and Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina get to have a last season together, and it's all really cool. Our next and final note is from Danny, who says, Eliana, I've enjoyed being introduced to your work through this podcast. You and Chris make a great team, and Ink Stained Wretches has become the show that I most look forward to each week. Chris, I appreciate and value your insight into the political issues of the day. I feel like you're as neutral as they come, and that's a rare trait today. Oh, Danny, you are making Chris's week. Pre-ordered your upcoming book long ago and can't wait for the release. Oh, my gosh, this email just gets better and better and better. Also, thank you for introducing me to The Remnant, which led to advisory opinions, pure gold, enough of the shameless praise. Attaches a link to an embarrassing article from a Mississippi news organization. It was posted to my local Memphis news website. At minimum, two news organizations published this nonsense. And the headline is, Rep. Benny Thompson tests positive for COVID-19, comma, White House hearing continues in his absence. Oops. Yeah, oops. And he says, in case you can't access the link, which we could, here's the headline and a sentence from the reporter that follows Thompson's release. So we read the headline. Prior to his diagnosis, Thompson, chairman of the House January 6th committee, was in the middle of a hearing focusing on the January 6th attack on the White House. And Danny says, White House hearing attack on the White House? Wow. This is a report. (laughs) This is not to pick on local news. This is a report from WLBT. Be a lot better if it was WBLT, but that's just me. (laughs) I assume. Do you like a BLT? Oh, yeah. Oh, I love a BLT. And it's just just now getting to be BLT season because, as we know, tomatoes, except for about two, three months a year, are garbage, except for those little grape tomatoes that you cut up and put in your salad. But WLBT is out of Jackson, Mississippi. It's the NBC affiliate there, and it's owned by Gray Television. And guess what? The person who did this probably is an intern <laughs> Or is probably paid very, very little. And somebody just said, post Benny Thompson's statement about this. But it is remarkable that they were able to be wrong so many times and in so many different directions in one piece. But whoever wrote this, I have a lot of sympathy for, it's it's byline to WLBT.com staff. So I'm sure you're overworked and underpaid, WLBT.com staff. And (laughs) hang in there, have yourself a BLT, and try to find a gig in a bigger market. It is now time for Chris's favorite segment of the week, where I am forced to say something nice, but Chris, (laughs) as always, leads by example. 
Did you read this wonderful column from my colleague Ross Douthat? Oh, I did read this about the road trips. What it means to see. Yes, he packed his whole family up. What it means to see America in person. It was a great piece. And I, here, let me say for, for our fellow ink-stained wretches out there, here is a, here's a, a lead to, well, let me read it to you. Dateline Big Fork, Montana. I'm writing these words early in a darkened motel room, 2,460 miles from home, eight hours east of Seattle and 45 minutes south of Glacier National Park. Around me, five other people are still asleep. My wife and four children crowded into queen-size beds, an air mattress, and a pack-and-play. These have been our conditions for the last 16 nights, which we have spent claiming an important American birthright, the westward migration via minivan, the great cross-country drive. Now, great lead, right? He puts you someplace. He paints a word picture and you are taken to the room. He packed it with detail, the little details about where and how that make it rich, that make it visual and rich that you are there. If you want to write an anecdotal lead, you have to pack it with this kind of detail so that people can feel, you can, you can hear that little snoring in the room. You can hear that baby in the pack and play murmuring and rustling. And you know what that light is like through the window as you are, as he is there writing this. And such leads can often fail. But man, when you stick it, you really stick it. And kudos to to Ross. This is just a, a great, lovely Gary piece. Gary Strug landing on that lead. Yes, yeah, that's right. <laughs> he absolutely stuck it. I'd say Mary Lee Retton is a West Virginian, but yes. My favorite item was I just wanted to find something on this Chinese mortgage crisis because I really don't follow this kind of news that closely. You but generally don't follow Chinese banking. Yeah, but but. <laughs> I did start reading about this, and I was really, like, taken in by, we're, we're going to link this Guardian story, but it, it, it is fascinating once you start reading about it. Essentially, these enormous, I guess they're, like, construction companies are, yep. like, building these big, like, housing complexes in China are defaulting on their mortgages, and then as a result of that, the people who are, are have purchased apartments that they're supposed to be building they're now refusing to pay their mortgages and now like banks have frozen people's accounts and they can't get their money out and there's is it just an enormous financial crisis like in engulfing all of china so i just wanted to read from this guardian piece last week hundreds of depositors gathered in front of the Zhengzhou branch of the people's bank of china in the pr- provincial capital of hainan demanding their frozen life savings held in rural banks which that is just like scary and crazy a day later tens of thousands of homeowners threatened to stop paying mortgages on scores of unfinished house- housing projects they had purchased All of this happened in a week where officials reported lackluster second quarter economic performance. But just the snowball effects of what is happening are astonishing. And I've been reading a little bit about like, you know, what the Communist Party is going to have to do to keep the economy afloat. And essentially, like, you know, the smart analysts are saying don't underestimate their ability to do so. That, you know, the government's not going to fall. They're going to they're going to figure something out. But I'm following the story and it, it's fascinating. So I just wanted to draw listeners attention to that. Aren't, aren't we smart sophisticates? Aren't we smart? Yeah. Here here praising great columns in The New York Times and talking about the great coverage the Guardian. Of the, this in The good. Guardian of the financial. Uh, I didn't expect in to be interested in it, but I was. So well, isn't that what all the best 
kind, not all the best, but most of the very best kind of journalism you could describe in that way. I didn't expect to be interested, but they grabbed me and they got me and they kept well, me this and they comes taught me up something in our, I didn't know. This comes up in our interview next week with Walter Ooh, Russell Mead, who, geez. you know, I asked him about our about his approach to writing columns. And he says, you know, he talks about your job as a columnist is to make the reader interested. Eliana's yes. time as a television producer pays off because she knows how to do the deep tease. So that she is knows the deep how tease. to do the deep tease. Uh, but as for this week, that is all the time we have left for the news about the news. If you have a story that you want us to talk about, please email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches for Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for wretches. Wretches.